This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 76 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Jane Friedman all about the business side of being a writer. But first, to last week's question, which was, do you write the hero or the heroine's journey? So, Shalina Valmon said, just finished her book, Awesome Timing. I love that. I love a spot of awesome timing. Uh, Linda said, oh my god, okay, I was so good on the epiphanies until Gail said that a lot of heroine uh, journey writers come out of fan fiction because they correct the pathos of hero journeys. Because mind blown. I totally did not pick up the pen uh, first to plan um, on stuff like Highlander the show. Nope. Amazing episode, Sasha. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much for the uh, comment. And I love that uh, this episode garnered so many uh, epiphanies for so many people because I can tell you that is exactly how I felt talking to Gail. Okay, so Bobby Ann Atwood said, pretty sure my brain flatlined (laughs) halfway through this episode because, sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's just because this is exactly how I felt. Um, (laughs) She said, pretty sure my brain flatlined halfway through this episode from all the ideas popping off. I'm definitely adding the heroine's journey to my wish list. Um, I had to think about this a bit. Uh, There are a lot of new relationships that come along to help the MC, but the end goal is for the MC to stand on her own when she's face to face with the villain. So I'm going to have to go with the hero's journey. After listening to the episode, some of that may have to change though. Uh... And then she continues to say, side note, I have never heard of a regular choice shoes and oh my God, they are gorgeous. So yeah, thanks wallet. Uh, Thanks to, so yeah, my wallet. (laughs) Thanks you for that. That's hilarious. So I had a couple of comments about the shoes as well that I'd actually forgotten because obviously I record these in advance um, and then I do like the intros each week. I had forgotten that I'd (laughs) spoken about shoes. So when all these comments get popping up about shoes, I was like, why? (laughs) What have I done? And I, oh yes, I've just confessed my shoe obsession. Uh, So yes, oh, I really do love Irregular Choice. If you haven't checked out Irregular Choice, you really need to. They have like this amazing, ridiculous Alice in Wonderland collection that is just fabulous. Like half of their shoes are actually works of art that should probably be on a shelf rather than on your feet. Edwin Downward said, like you, I'm firmly in the epiphany zone when it comes to the heroine's journey. I've known intuitively my writing didn't fit the hero's journey, but it wasn't until I heard Gail discussing the heroine framework on a couple of my regular podcasts that things began to click. I rushed off to buy the ebook and quickly recognised my protagonist is a heroine at heart. It's so freeing to know I can follow the route I've been taking and don't have to pigeonhole my plots into a form they don't fit. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And as painful as it is to realise that, um, you know, that I'm going to have to do some some changes, let's say, to uh, the book that won't die, it is also freeing and a relief to know that I finally know what the problem was. 
Um, okie dokie. So we also had comments from uh, Jane ba uh, Barnard, Ian Worrell, Jackson Hollingsworth, um, and Nathan Scammell. So thank you very much uh, for those, and for also for everybody who DM'd me on Instagram because I often get lots of DMs uh, about this. If you ever want to uh, sort of submit a comment or anything, then you you can always do so by DMing me on Instagram, uh, which is at Sasha Black Author. Alrighty, so this week's question then is, what aspect do you find most difficult about the business side of writing? The book recommendation of the week this week is Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, Why That Is and What You Can Do About It by Stephen Pressfield. Now, Stephen Pressfield is not for everybody. He is definitely Marmite. Um, and so, yes, he he gives the sort of short, sharp slap on the body um, to people who need a bit of a, a, a motivator. But if you're somebody who prefers more of a hug and sharing of Ben and Jerry's, uh, which also I am partial to occasionally, um, then he's not really for you. He has definitely got a way with words. He's the guy who wrote The War on Art. I think it's, yeah, because The Art of War is the other one. <laughs> it's the other one. The, the Art, The Art, The War on Art, yes. Um, and so, yeah, this one is like another play on that whole concept and I love it I, I think it's fantastic it's brutal it's fabulous um, and so I always like to recommend that all right so in a personal update then when this airs it's going to be my birthday um so of course that's not the case for patrons who will be listening early uh but for for when this airs in real time on the 10th of march it will be my birthday and i will be having a day off um i'm trying so so very hard to finish uh side characters by my birthday uh but i am also utterly fucking exhausted and so I just don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. It's this really weird, like, <laughs> situation where I'm so tired I'm slowing down and the writing is getting slower, but equally, like, I'm so close to the ending that I am reluctant to stop because when you then lose that flow, it's harder to then pick it up again. You've got to try and remember everything from before. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm like acutely aware that I need a break because I can't remember the last time I had like a week off. Um, and also desperate just to get the fucking thing done so that I can rest and like rest mentally as well. Like rather than taking time off knowing I've got to come back and still finish the book. So yeah, I, it's that horrible like final limping towards the end of the marathon type moment type of week for me at the moment. But... Yes, I will be celebrating my birthday and I will be 34 um, uh, next week. So, um, yes, hopefully I shall be indulging in a very long bath with a fizzy bath, bomby type thing and a very good book and silence, absolute silence. <laughs> Just a minute to myself, which would be lovely. Um, what else? Oh, yes. So uh, this is the last time I can promote it. So if you guys have not joined my Rebel Authors Facebook group, then you are going to miss out on the live Q&A with Mark Lefebvre uh, on how to market your books wide, which is going to be on the 17th of March at 8pm. So this is the last time I'm going to mention it. 
I was also on uh, the Kobo Writing Life podcast talking about prose and craft and we had, we actually had a blast. I adore Kobo um, and I adore the girls over there as well. They are just the best and they're so much fun to talk to and it was just a lovely like nerd out about craft. So yes, do go and check out that and I will leave a link to that in the show notes. What else can I tell you? Oh yeah, some very exciting announcement. So I hope that everybody has caught the mini episode that I uh, threw out there a few days ago, uh, launching the Rebel Author Diaries. It's an anthology and holy crap, am I excited for this. So why am I doing it? Well, I'm doing it because, well, for a few reasons. One, um, I think it would be very exciting to uh, do a collaboration like this. Uh, second, I think it's an opportunity for us all to test our craft. Um, I know that I am going to be writing uh, some characters that are very different to anything I've written before. And it's just like a, a chance for me to explore, push my craft, do something I haven't really done before, um, and also <laughs> to explore the darker side of characters. So I'm going to read you guys the pitch in case you haven't uh, listen to that other episode. So the, the, the call for stories goes something like this. Not something actually like this. What happens when the villain wins? Are you sick of dashing debonairs? Are you fed up of being blinded by shining armour? Sometimes all a girl wants is a villain for a hero. The Rebel Diaries is looking for stories starring characters with a dubious shade of morals. We want characters who aren't afraid of getting what they want, causing a bit of chaos, dabbling in mischief and mayhem and slathering on the sarcasm. We want stories that slip into the grey areas and are bulging with villains, deviants and rebels. We're after sassy tales littered with questionable morals and happy endings. For the villains, anyway. We're not looking for horror or gratuitous violence, but dark stories that are fun, light-hearted explorations of the characters, usually hidden in obscurity. We're actively encouraging submissions from own voices, characters or authors with disabilities, or from underrepresented backgrounds, for example, LGBTQ+, etc. So yes, if you think you have a short story, uh, roughly between two and a half and seven and a half thousand words that you think would fit um, this anthology, then please do submit it. I will leave a link in the show notes and I'm going to be leaving this link in the show notes until the submission deadline um, is over. So that will be the 30th of June 2021 in case you're listening in the future. And um, the link in the show notes will give you all of the information, all of the details um, about, you know, criteria and uh, things like that. If you do have any questions about it, then you can drop me an email um, on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, or like I said earlier, you can drop into my uh, DMs on Instagram. Alrighty, Rebel of the Week this week is Val Neal. Val says... In college, I took a general social studies slash history course with a horrible teacher. He was an older man who spent more time complaining about kids these days than actually teaching. 
start a topic and then segue into how kids didn't care about political issues or learning. He'd complained that students never took their study seriously and were always late. All of us were sitting there attentively and I personally never saw anyone come in late and yet he'd just keep going. Every day he used up at least half of our class time, if not more, bitching about how students these days hated learning, ironically causing us not to actually learn. One day before he arrived, a student stood up and said she was sick and tired of not getting anything out of the class. She passed around a petition to get the teacher removed, which of course we all signed, but I didn't think anything would actually come of it. A week or so later, she popped her head into the class. He'd already started talking at this point, but she just ignored him and told us from the doorway, we have a new instructor, follow me. The entire class bailed while the teacher watched us with a shocked and confused expression on his face. I felt kind of bad since his superiors obviously hadn't told him, but you reap what you sow. The student led us to a new classroom with a younger, equally confused teacher who really didn't understand what had happened with our previous teacher, only that she now had to teach a class uh, a full semester's worth of material in half of a semester which we had left. They uh, Eventually, we learned way more uh, topical information like the US past involvement in the Middle East and how it affected current politics. I'm a pretty jaded person, so this was incredible to see such a clear example of how one determined person really can make a difference. And I love this rebellion. Number one, I love that um, it wasn't actually the person who sent it in, uh, but that it left such a mark on you because clearly, um, you know, it, 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 it in some ways it was a small rebellion to get a petition going, but look at the enormous effect it had and like the ripple and the fact that that stayed with you throughout your adult life as well. So I love that. I love that story. Thank you so much. So if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or in, or somewhere in between. Or if you've seen somebody do something rebellious um, and it's had, you know, a great outcome or perhaps a husband, a spouse, whatever, don't uh, feel like you have to only send in rebellions that you have done. Like uh, Val sent in one about her uh, college uh, classmate. You are welcome to send one in about um, somebody that you know. Please do send them in about people you know, though. <laughs> otherwise how do I know if it's true anyway two new patrons this week welcome and a huge thank you to Jasmine Amaro and Giannin Viercilli or Viercilli um I hope I have said your names right please please do email me and tell me if I haven't and I am happy to correct um, and of course, a whopping great big thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as um, attending the um, Patreon-only exclusive Poison and Prose sessions, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Pro Writing Aid is sponsoring this episode, so I am just going to tell you a little bit about them. Pro Writing Aid is an editing software, and in my personal opinion, it's fan fucking tastic. I use it personally as both my like last line of defence and as a grammar checker, a style editor, and a bit of a writing mentor, I suppose, as well, before I send my manuscripts off to my editor. Pro Writing Aid is about more than just finding grammar 
grammar mistakes. It helps you learn good writing techniques as well, and it has 20 different writing reports that make suggestions and then offer detailed explanations as to why they are making those suggestions. They have videos and quizzes and all kinds of things to help you understand the reasonings behind the suggestions. Writing can be grammatically perfect and still feel awkward and clumsy, but ProWritingAid helps search out elements like repetitiveness, vague wording, sentence like sentence length variation, overdependence on adverbs, passive voice, overcomplicated sentence constructions, and so much more. Of course, ProWritingAid will never replace a human editor, rather it helps you to self-edit to a deeper level, so that when you send it off to an editor, they will be able to focus on the meat of your writing and not spend their time fixing basic writing issues. If you would like to check out more about ProWritingAid, then I'm going to leave a link in the show notes and you can use my discount code REBEL25 to get 25% off. Now, really, I highly recommend that you do go and check it out. All right, enough talking from me. Uh, let's get on with the show. And um, yeah, let's talk business. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Jane Friedman. Jane is a full-time entrepreneur since 2014 and has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry. She's the co-founder of The Hot Sheet, which I read and think is fabulous, the essential publishing industry newsletter for authors, which was named 2020 Media Outlet of the Year by Digital Bookworld. Hello, Jane. Hello, Sasha. Wonderful to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. And I did have the pleasure of your company um, back when people were allowed to like meet up and, you know, hug and shake hands and things back at London Book Fair. I mean, I can't actually, was that London Book Fair 2019? Yeah, because no, last, yeah. 2019, wasn't it? Because last year was mm-hmm. cancelled. Oh my goodness me. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so how have you been since then? Tell everyone a little bit, um, I guess, about you and your, and your journey and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I've been working in publishing since I was in college. I got my foot in the door through an internship. I started off in traditional publishing, uh, working primarily on nonfiction, prescriptive nonfiction books. A lot of people know me for my history at Writer's Digest, which is the big magazine and book line in the United States for writers. But I worked on a lot of different imprints and throughout the company, it was a mid-sized publisher. And so I left that position in 2010 and started full-time university teaching. Then I went back into publishing for a while. Um, And then I went full-time freelance in 2014. And so along the way, a lot of my focus has been on the business of publishing, helping writers understand the digital age of publishing, especially as it applies to self-publishing, all the many different paths that have opened up since I got into the business. It's really quite remarkable. So that's the really brief, brief history. Yeah, and you do a fabulous, um, I th- I'm probably going to get this wrong now, but I think it's at like the end of the year slash the beginning of the year where you give all of the different um, like trend, uh, not trend, sorry, the path options. Right. So exactly. um, what would somebody search for if they went to your website? Because this is such a valuable piece of information. Thank you. So this is the the key paths to book publishing or the key book publishing paths. Um, And so, you know, you've got the right chart when you see like the rainbow colors. So I, (laughs) I try to, it's divided into columns. And so it's a spectrum of publishing options from traditional to self. And then there's even a column for what I call 
social publishing. So where you're putting stuff out on social media or on community sites like Wattpad. Amazing. Okay, well, we're here to talk about your book, The Business of Being a Writer. I have a a lot of listeners who would love to be full-time writers or full-time, you know, like entrepreneurs, full-time creatives, let's say. In 2021, do you still think it's possible to both like be starting from scratch as in your first time publishing and also still be able to make a living as a writer? Oh, yes, but... um... A lot of patience is involved, let's say, and you can speed your progress if you have a lot of discipline about what you're trying to accomplish or who your audience is or what market you're trying to get into. I think initially many writers stumble because they're going very broad or they haven't really thought through their business model. They're just kind of trying a lot of different things at once, doing none of them all that well. And then they conclude it's too hard and the market's already saturated and you know they lost their chance because they didn't start 10 years ago or something like that. But nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I think it is definitely overwhelming for people because there are so many options and different platforms and different technologies. And you have to have a little bit of awareness self-awareness of your strengths and what's sustainable. So I'll probably say the word sustainable multiple (laughs) times (laughs) during this conversation because it's so critical. Um, Many things that we do to build a career, it's a series of small steps Mm -hmm. repeated over time. And so you have to have that consistency and it has to be sustainable if you're going to be able to do it for the length of time it requires to see that payoff. And so you mentioned there, like um, choosing a business model. Can you talk just a little bit about like the the different types of business models that you see? Sure. I'll start with kind of the dream that most writers have when they start out. The dream business model is you're going to write books that someone's going to pay for. It could be a publisher. It could be a reader's. But someone is exchanging money for your words in book format. When I started in publishing in the late 90s, you know, you wanted to get a really big advance, the biggest possible book deal, maybe with an agent representing you. Um, and, you know, that would you would just keep writing more books and getting paid, you know, a living wage for them. But the honest truth is, even if you go back 20 years or how, really however many years you'd like to go back, it's pretty rare that any writer would make a living through book sales alone, mm-hmm. unless you know you were a really consistent genre fiction writer, um, you know, putting out at least a book a year. It's usually when writers have a really strong backlist that then they start to see a living coming out of their you know, the body of work that they've produced. And so to quantify yeah. that because lots of people say backlist, but what does that mean? Does it mean three books? Does it mean a completed series? Does it mean 10 books, 20 books? Like what does a backlist? Because I know that like when I came in, I heard some figures and I was like, how the fuck am I going to get to that many books? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's a few years later, I've got, you know, tens of books and, you know, but yeah, sorry, just quantify that for for listeners. Yes. There isn't one number that I could probably give you that's going to apply to every writer in every genre, of course. So there's a range for, now I'll give a sense of that range. So in the United States, there's a really popular concept of 20 books to 50K. Mm -hmm. 
And maybe you've talked about this on your show many times already. So it's the idea that once you hit book number 20, you could potentially earn $50,000 a year in sales. Now that sounds to some people like an impossible number, 20 books. Like even there's some career authors through traditional publishing that haven't produced 20 books. So it's really looking at trying to get as much product on the market uh, as possible within a small time frame in order to have like some sort of competitive standing. It can be important if you're self-publishing to have, basically have a store. Like it's really hard to have a career with just one book and one product that you're selling in your little store. Um, so I think though, I'll never forget listening to Bella Andre who works in the romance category saying that she really saw momentum pick up with book five. Um, but you know, I think, I think it just differs for every author what, book it's going to be where you're going to where you're going to see that pickup but a series mm. definitely helps i bet you have seen probably the effects of having a series especially yeah, if you for get... my nonfiction, for sure <laughs> yeah okay wonderful so it, a series just makes it easier because if you've got people in the door who are invested in the characters or the storyline it's not going to be that hard to sell them on the next book in the series if you're doing your job as a storyteller but if you keep writing a bunch of standalones and worse if you keep switching genres it's almost like you know putting the clock back each time because you're now finding your market again finding your readership again if you've switched genres especially Okay, perfect. So I think, um, can we just circle back? Sorry, because I know I ta- yeah. I'm just so curious about all of the things. Um, can we ta- uh, circle back to the models? Because I think we started yeah. with the dream. Exactly. So the dream is that you're going to write books and that's going to bring in all the money you need. And I think that can happen, but it happens over time, unless you're some sort of like one book wonder. I don't know, like you wrote The Martian. <laughs> I don't, like you would need to have some book that was just, oh my God goodness, amazing, and just broke all the records. Most of us don't do that on our first book. Um, So that opens up lots of other areas for exploration if you need to see money coming in right away. It's better if you don't, but if you're looking, patronage I think is the next best option for most writers, especially if you've got even if it's just a small group of readers who are interested in what you're doing, you've got some fans who were really invested in your first book or first few books. You can set up a Patreon account pretty easily. You can start offering them behind the scenes or outtakes, short stories, things that are just for them. And that's easy for them to commit to like a dollar a month or you know, you can have different levels, um, $5 a month, $20 a month. So not only does that help you bring in some more earnings, but it also helps cultivate a really great fan base for your future work. Um, you can see this on the nonfiction side, on like journalism side through things like Substack. So the email, the paid newsletter phenomenon that's very popular at the moment. Um, There's also more like relaxed forms of patronage, like just asking people to tip you. There's Venmo, you know, there's all these ways that if you're active on social and sharing things and being an entertaining person, uh, you can flash your Venmo account or say you can tip me over here on PayPal and it makes it easy for people to show their appreciation. Yeah, that always makes me think of, um, what's her name, Amanda Palmer? Like the art of asking, I think it's that. Right. Um, fantastic. Okay. So what are the 
biggest mistakes you see writers making like when they are trying to create a business uh, based on their writing <laughs> so there's so many uh, different categories of mistake um I think now this is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive um, given where we just were, but I think it's, it's good to address the elephant in the room right away, um, which is when people start trying to build a business as a writer and maybe they're trying out patronage, maybe they're trying paid newsletters, maybe they're um, uh, doing a podcast or they're doing these things that might bring an income in the future. They're trying to build a platform for themselves. It can take time away from the writing. Mm. So people start wondering, how am I supposed to get any of my writing done? How am I supposed to produce books when I'm out doing all of these other things to build my platform or build community or to earn money? Like it's stealing this marketing stuff or the platform stuff, stealing my time. Um, and I think that there's not a clean answer to this. I mean, I think every author approaches it differently. But one of the things to keep in mind is that your platform and your ability to earn money is directly tied to the body of work you're producing. So you do want to prioritize the body of work. And that might be putting out a new book you can charge for. It might be producing things for your patrons. It might be the paid newsletter, but putting the body of work first is essential. You don't want to like take your eye off the ball because that's what's going to like building the backlist or building the number of ways that people can find you and enjoy your content. That's always got to be the center of what you do. Mm -hmm. So it's a mistake to get too distracted with all of the other things that might surround that. Unless of course you want, you decide writing books is not for you, <laughs> which I think sometimes people discover actually that's not, they're not as interested in being as an author as they might've thought. And then I think the other answer is thinking through, as far as building a platform and doing things that, is, that will build your readership and bring you money, what are, what's part of your creative practice that feels natural and organic that can also serve a marketing purpose? Mm. So for some people like doing a serialization that might go on Wattpad is part of the creative practice and it's part of building their body of work, but it also brings them new readers. Or maybe doing a storytelling uh, podcast of some kind is something that brings new readers, but also contributes to that body of work. So when you can find those things that do double duty, it is really powerful. Um, and it's really a matter of figuring out again, what's sustainable, what suits your strengths. Um, and then the other, the other mistake that kind of ties into this too is there's so many new technologies and new ways of marketing and promoting all of the time. And again, it creates a lot of confusion for people. They think that there's fear of missing out, worried if you're going to fall behind, um, that you're going to become irrelevant. Like there's so many fears surrounding this. But, you know, as as I like to say, when we talk about the future of publishing, like at London Book Fair or other events, you know, when, when TV came out, it didn't make radio obsolete. And, you know, now that we have the internet, it doesn't mean that TV has gone away. So new technologies rarely make other forms of um, engagement obsolete. So you need to remember that when you see something like Clubhouse, which is the new social media du jour, 
come up, it doesn't mean that suddenly podcasting is irrelevant. And now you have to switch to Clubhouse or, you know, whatever it happens to be that you're looking at. So bottom line, it's about trying to keep your eyes on your own paper and looking at what's working well for you and becoming really expert in what works for you and the readers you're trying to reach. I, I'm not saying don't experiment, but try not to let your anxiety levels or your attention be swayed every five minutes by what other people are doing. Oh, I think that's such a fundamentally important piece of advice because so many of us um, have FOMO and not only FOMO, but like the, what's the word? Like the feeling, the the should feeling, Mm. oh, we should be doing such and such or you know, we we should be using that social media because that's X, Y, and Z author has 15,000 followers on right. it. But it's absolute right. nonsense because for every author who is in KU, there are, you know, there's another author who's wide. For every author who says, you know, you must have three series before it works there's somebody who's got two books and making a hundred grand a year so you know like and I think one of the one of my most favorite examples of this is um is Jenna Moresi who is a YouTuber and author with practically 250,000 subscribers Mm. and you know she is absolutely killing it and she breaks every single rule that you know indies have and she's just fantastically brilliant at what she does and and yeah so I I love this and that's such an empowering message for listeners you know don't ever feel like you have to go and do the thing or go and be on that social media you know I've more or less come off Twitter and you know maybe I shouldn't have you know I've probably got I think I've got seven or seven or eight thousand followers on there and I've just I've come off because I don't like it I don't enjoy it and I like Instagram where I can be a silly twat and everybody laughs at me you know (laughs) like it's fun you know that's that's my fun place and and so yeah absolutely oh I love that love it I love it um Okay, so what are the core business principles a writer needs in order, like they need to work on in order to to make this a full-time business slash career? I would say, I'll narrow it to books for the moment. I think having the, the deeper understanding you have of the genre you're working in or the category and the audience for that or the readership for that it just strengthens every single part of of the content or the books that you're producing and then the marketing and the packaging around it. So a lot of the pitfalls I see around authors, and this would apply to even traditional, traditionally published authors, it, it affects everyone. They're so focused on kind of their own, <laughs> their own perception of what they're producing or their own status anxiety sometimes like they want the book to say a certain thing or be a certain thing that increases their prestige in a certain community that they've forgotten what it is that's actually going to appeal to the readership Mm. Um, I saw this with a YA series that was self-published where the author didn't want to look like all the other YA series out there because she thought they looked too down market and so her covers were very upmarket and literary looking, although that was not what she was writing. Um, and of course, it failed. Like she couldn't find her readers because the cover did not match the insides. 
And so that's just one example of something I see repeated in lots of different ways where authors are really thinking about their own aesthetic concerns or prestige concerns first, rather than how does, you know, how do I package this so readers understand that's for me? Like this, this story looks like I'm going to enjoy it. Um, sometimes we think about books and writing as so much of an art form that we forget that there's a cover on it. It is packaged like a product. <laughs> People treat it like a product when they look at it on Amazon and look at the customer reviews. And so you need to be thinking about your, your book and how it fits within your entire category. And also that, that applies to the marketing copy or how you describe the book. I'll never forget this was that book expo, so the corollary to London Book Fair in the United States. There was a panel of publishers talking about marketing. Um, uh, was it? I can't remember if it was YA fiction, but one of the marketers said, we were all so tired of promoting the latest vampire novel that we stopped calling them vampire novels. We just wanted to mix it up and be more creative and, you know, and they're like, but as soon as we stopped calling it that, no one understood what we were trying to sell them because <laughs> the readers aren't tired of it. Like, oh my they're gosh. for the next one. So it's, I think it happens when, whether you're an author or a marketer, maybe you just kind of get bored with, with what you've been doing and you forget what your readers are looking for. I, I love that. And it's funny that you've mentioned that as well, because over the last, I would say, month, I think that's been the most common question that I've mm. I've been getting and been asking of um, writers, like newer writers or writers who are sort of publishing maybe their first to, first to third book. None of them can tell me who their comp authors are. Um, mm you know, or they don't read in their genre. And I've, and I've been really surprised at, at that because that's something I do do. And I had assumed that everybody did that, but I think that's, maybe that's something that I've learned along the way and internalized and forgotten that that isn't second nature to everybody. So if, if you are an author listening and you can't, I don't know, say lift, list off five or maybe 10 authors in your genre, um, then <laughs> after this episode, Go to Amazon or go to Kobo or go to Apple and, and go hunt in your genre, darling, because you need to know these things. Um, yeah. And you need to be reading and you need to be understanding the tropes and the expectations and the the like, I feel like some genres have a very specific tone or like tonality like in terms of and even like key phrases like there's certain phrases in YA that you see all of the time and you just know that like that's what makes it a YA book. But yeah, I completely um I love that. I love it. I love it. And so relevant as well. Um, okay. So are there any mindset shifts that you feel writers need to make in order to really give this a go and, you know, turn their writing into a full-time career? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to, I want to think of, I want to make sure that I don't repeat anything that I've said. I, I think that some writers do get a little bit precious about what they're doing. And, and they forget that what they're producing is a product to be marketed and sold. Um, and I think I've already kind of stated the case for that. I think the next piece that often comes into play um, would be thinking like a marketer in terms of if sales are important to you, and I don't think they're necessarily important to every author, but some are really focused on sales as a measure of success um, or hitting a particular bestseller list. Um, I think many authors don't realize how much 
trial and error can go into success and testing and experimenting with different things. In other words, not assuming that you got it right the first time. And if you got it, if you got it wrong, that it's game over. So professional marketers do A-B testing. They'll, they'll test different co covers against one another in advertising. They'll test different copy. Um, there's so many things that can be tested, but very few authors actually take that step. Mm -hmm. um, some of them think it's too much work or um, that it's not gonna matter. And I think you just never know actually what you don't know in terms of what appeals to the readership. So being curious about that and running these tests, I think can make a huge difference. Um, just the simplest tests like testing one or two sentences of marketing copy in your Facebook or your Amazon ad, um, testing different covers against one another in the ads. And you can really find out quickly if what you're doing could be more effective in getting sales, getting conversions if you're advertising and just being, and also just general branding as well, making sure that you're conveying the right message. But I think so many authors consider this, I don't know, like creative or it's like, it's a crapshoot. Um, it doesn't have to be a crapshoot. <laughs> um, no, and it's unbelievable. Like if you're running, for example, say the BookBub click ads rather than the big expensive ones, it's amazing how even half of a percent difference. So let's mm. say, for example, you use a yellow button instead of a red button and you get half a percent more uh, like click throughs. It's unbelievable the amount of money that 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 can turn something from unprofitable to extraordinarily profitable and and just from just from making the effort and and you know changing a button and looking at the click-through rates it's not I think a lot of people get scared of the numbers because they think it's a yes. lot of data and a lot of numbers and it's some numbers but it's not loads and like just yes. have faith you can do it um all right. So you mentioned earlier that uh, I, you know, for a lot of people coming to this business, the big dream is to sit there and write for eight hours a day. But you also kind of alluded to the reality, which is that you know, for nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people out of a million, that's not actually going to happen. It's not the reality. <laughs> we have to do something else. So what are, you know, what are some other ways that you cover in your book in terms of uh, making money from your words? Because I know you mentioned a few different things in there about how people can, can make uh, more money. Yeah. So one of the most natural ways is to offer services of some kind based on your own expertise or experience as a writer. So for instance, if you do like the numbers part, like if you're really doing a bang up job with your own ads, can you help other authors with theirs? Um, if you're really good at copywriting, can you offer copywriting services? Um, can you be doing at manuscript editing? Uh, all of those things I think are really nice as supplements to any writer's income. The danger, of course, is that you're going to expend your creative energy on someone else's work rather than your own. But as long as you like set boundaries and, you know, if uh, maybe it's a good problem to have actually, if you suddenly are really successful um, getting freelance work for some of these things, but usually you can set boundaries and make sure that your own writing time is protected. There's also teaching and speaking. I think this is sometimes the holy grail for some authors. They would love to be paid to go and talk about their books to audiences. Um, 
And if you get big enough, that's that's certainly possible. But there's also, especially right now during the pandemic, there's so many more, I think, speaking and teaching opportunities that can actually be very um, profitable because you don't have the travel expense um, and you can sit in the comfort of your home and 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 be helpful to people. Um, Let's see, affiliate income is another thing that I mentioned in the book. So, you know, some people don't like that idea of becoming an Amazon affiliate and giving that company more business, but that's the biggest affiliate program in the world. And, you know, a lot of the things that you make money on is actually not book sales, but all of the other weird stuff <laughs> that people order on Amazon uh, from makeup to clothing to, you know, cat food. So you can always take advantage of that if you, but you need to have, um, you know, like a blog or a website or something where you can have your affiliate links. Um, but there are other affiliate programs. There's Bookshop and, you know, there are affiliate programs for almost every walk of life. So depending on what your interests or hobbies are, there's some potential there for some affiliate income. I would consider it gravy. Um, for most people, it's not going to be like some driver of your business model. Mm. Um, what else? Am I, am I forgetting anything that I'm touched on in the book? I think that I think well, I think they are the vast majority, like the big the bigger ones. I mean, certainly they're some of the ones that I do personally. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and also, obviously, you mentioned patronage um, earlier on as well, and that's another another uh, income source too. Let's say people want to leave their day jobs. You've spent a number of years full time as an entrepreneur and, and a freelancer. So what do you think are like the core skills that you've used um, as a freelancer that, that writers could perhaps train up in or prepare for or study or, you know, uh, before they leave their day jobs? The, the one piece of advice I would suggest for anyone contemplating that is to start tracking where you're money is coming from that's not a full-time job what whatever you're leaving behind that doesn't enter the equation but start tracking book sales or affiliate income or speaking or teaching or patronage start listing it religiously if you're not already and see what those numbers look like sometimes i'm not sure people they have an idea in their head but putting it in black and white figures in an excel spreadsheet is really really helpful um, yesterday, I actually just did like a little Sunday talk about the very earliest days of my freelance business. And I shared some of the Excel um, numbers that I did for those earliest months. And the money was coming from all sorts of places um, because I didn't have a strategy yet. It was just all over the map. I didn't know what I was going to excel in. And so there was a little bit of an exploratory or an experimental phase of my first freelance year that I think you kind of have to accept. Like there, there are too many unknowns. And until you start doing certain types of freelance work consistently, you just don't know if it's going to either be worth your time, mm. um, if the hourly rate is going to make any sense. So, you know, there's sometimes I talk about the three P's of freelancing. So you've, there's, um, let's see if I can remember them all. Uh, so there's a uh, positioning pricing. It's embarrassing. I'm not going to be able to remember the third, uh, maybe it's product. Um, so the positioning is figuring out what, how is it that you differentiate yourself from other people who are in kind of a similar orbit? They might, you might consider them competitors, but usually I find, especially 
in today's online collaborative world, you tend to send people, you tend to send your competitors clients, like, cause there are better fits for some, for some folks who come to your door, you're going to say, you know, you should really be looking at this other person who has a better skill, better skill set or experience for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Lisa Tenor is in my space. We both do nonfiction book proposal work. She has loads of experience with doctors and the medical profession and books related to health that I do not have. And so often when I get one of those types of clients at my door, I send them to her because I think they're going to be better served in any event. But you want to think about your positioning as specifically as possible. I think too many people will throw open the door as wide as possible and say, well, I, I can do anything. I can be anything you want, anything you need. And think about that in terms of, I, I think a, a good parallel to see how ridiculous that position is, is what if you said that to like any potential partner or spouse or friend, I'll be <laughs> anything you want. You would run in the other direction. You really would. <laughs> That's hilarious. So You've really got to say, this this is where I shine. This is what I've practiced at. This is where I'm an expert and I am ready to help you because I totally understand um, your needs or I understand the market or whatever. You need to give people confidence and that's your positioning. And then pricing is something that's very, I think everyone knows is very psychological. Um, And it can also have a really important relationship with demand. So early in your career, your pricing might be lower, but not too low because you don't want people to think the quality is crap. Um, And then when you see that you have a certain amount of demand, you can increase your price if you can't keep up with the amount of work coming in. The other thing I'd like to suggest to freelancers is that if, if you are quite new, then you may need to offer reassurances and reduce the risk for people to take that first step. So new freelancers, you'll often find they put their phone number right on the homepage of their site, um, or they make it really easy for them to be contacted, or they throw in a free 15-minute conversation or something to get the ball rolling. Uh, I'm at a point in my career where I do not have to do that, Um, but that's a way to kind of get over the natural resistance people can have if they don't yet know you or what you stand for yet. Yeah, I'm I'm shuddering a little bit because yeah. I'm definitely at the point where I cannot do that. I uh, I I've like changed all my structure of my weeks now so that because I'm just it's, there's not enough time in the day anymore. Um, I wanted to come back on one of the things that you said, but I've I've now forgotten what it was. So never mind. Um, what for you personally has been the biggest lesson you've learned over your career uh, at, from running like a what well, from being a writer and also being an entrepreneur and, and freelance and just running a business in, in general? Usually you are your own worst enemy. That's that's what I've learned. Um, usually oh, it's a home truth, isn't it? <laughs> God, that's a knife to the back. <laughs> it, it is. It is. I think that um, the pain points I have in my business, um, the things that I don't like about my business, the things I want to change that I'm working to change, they're all conditions that I created. Um, so, you know, the like, for instance, um, 
when I started freelancing, I realized I could get a lot of work helping people with submissions materials. So this is for traditional publishing, like proposals and queries and so on. And I'm quite good at it. I'm very efficient. And I quickly built up a really active business doing this. But because I was so successful at it, uh, it just consumed, I would say, I don't know, two to three hours out of every day. And it didn't leave me enough time to develop other parts of my own writing, like my paid newsletter, The Hot Sheet, where I report on the industry, which is important to me. Like that's the part of my business that's really fun that I want to spend more time doing. But because I allowed the successful part of the business to kind of just get too like outsized, um, it encroached on everything else. Um, and so it wasn't until like five years later, six years later, even that I decided, okay, I have to, I have to put an end to this. Like I'm just mm -hmm. torturing myself. Um, and I stopped accepting that type of work. Now you wouldn't have to do, do it cold Turkey. <laughs> like I did, like you could have a more gradual phasing out, um, but fortunately, I was able to time it with the pandemic so that I have another form of income that will not replace that, which is online teaching and, mm. and webinars. So I think that's, you have to realize that where the, the places where you put your time and attention, if you're successful at it, it's going to grow and you have to be prepared for that. Like, is that actually what you want to do with your freelance life? Um, sometimes we're so afraid of earning money that we do things that maybe aren't the best thing for our future careers, but we feel like I've got to take the money now um, while people are offering it or else I'll never earn another dollar again. So it's kind of this scarcity mindset that um, the business won't be there tomorrow. But usually if you've done a decent job, it will be there tomorrow and you can always, you know, you, you can always go back if things don't work out the way you thought. Oh, I love that. And I think that that is a lesson that people learn over and over again, because you, 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 well, I don't know about you personally and, and listeners, but for me, I know that I have at least learned that lesson twice so far in my <laughs> career, because, you know, I sort of stop what doing one thing in favor of something else. And then, you know, that grows, but actually it, it's, you it, it sometimes it's me changing. Sometimes mm. it's a realization. Sometimes it's actually, I, I want to do half of this, but also something just slightly tangentially, you know, linked to it or whatever. Um, and then I, I don't know, I always struggle a little bit with then like, you know, having, you have to let go because it's the best thing for you and the best thing for bit for your business. But also there's like that guilt factor, which I, well, yeah, for me, I never used to feel guilt until I had a kid, but yeah, now I'm like, I feel guilty about everything. But yeah, like I, I love that. I definitely gave up when I, I, you mentioned earlier on, um, like how, when you first, um, shared your spreadsheets when you when you first went freelance you had all of the different scattergun I mean that was so me like when I left uh, my day job I was so shit scared of like not being able to pay my rent mm -hmm. that yeah. I just literally took on every single piece of work I did yeah. all of the freelance work I did you know all kinds of stuff and then I was like a year in and I was like wait I haven't finished a book <laughs> in like right. a year and I was like shit so uh yeah I had to like radically change what I was doing because obviously I'd left to write books not do freelance you know mm -hmm. well not do predominantly mm -hmm. freelance stuff anyway so right. yeah I think that's a fantastic um lesson okay um 
if you can only give right new writers one tip in terms of the business side, something that you just wish they would um, focus on or change or, or do, like one tip for new writers, forget the craft and, and the book writing, but the core business side, what would it be? And I'm going to break the rules and make it two things. Excellent. Uh, I love a rule breaker. <laughs> you devious rebel you. <laughs> it is the rebel author exactly. podcast. So. <laughs> Get the ball rolling on your online presence sooner rather than later. And I don't want to say author website or social media. I don't know that it matters. But pick something that you can put your name on and start being part of the writing and publishing community um, because it's I find that and, and and I'm acknowledging here that I'm focusing on the business side and giving short uh, necessarily giving short shrift to the craft and technique I'm going to assume that you're writing and like all of that is going forward and you're putting the time into mastery of the craft as you should I just find that some people consider themselves unnecessarily bad at marketing or putting themselves out there and they equate marketing and promotion or self-promotion with something that's dirty or something that doesn't actually suit the creative side like they switch hats or you know they they decide that now I'm going to stop being a writer I'm going to start being a marketer and promoter but that usually that's the sort of marketing and promoting that no one wants to see so to back to my original point, putting something online, whether it's a website or getting started on social, I think helps you start working through some of the challenges you might have about what it means to be a public persona as a writer, as an author. So I'm suggesting that you put yourself out there as a writer, as an author, even if you're new, even if you feel like you're an imposter, even if you don't feel like you deserve to call yourself writer, I think it's important to go out there and say, I am a writer. I am looking to commune with other writers <laughs> um, and I am going to have a readership and it's important for me to be out there. So that's one piece of it. Um, and then what was the second tip? Um, <laughs> oh dear, it'll come back to me. Maybe, is there any other question? Well, there's we my favorite about. question, <laughs> which is, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So <laughs> the one that always trips everyone up. Um, tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh, okay. So that did get me to immediately yes. remember the other tip, <laughs> just as I expected. Um, sorry, my, now my cat is in front of me Don't and worry. distracting me. Don't Copywriting is the other tip. I think it's the great under-recognized skill set. And it's really hard to say, here's what you should do to improve your skills in this area. Other than like the way I learned was through a site called Copy Blogger, which mm. isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. This is back in, I don't know, the late aughts, I suppose, when it was to me, it feels like it was at the height of its popularity. And so I was always reading copy blogger posts. And that's how I learned how to write good headlines. 
you know, for when I, or, or to write even good social media posts or to understand the sort of magic words that psychologically as human beings, we all respond to. Um, it helps you write better marketing copy for your books. It helps you write better bios for your website. It helps you in countless ways. So um, I'm trying, I don't know of any actual handbook on copywriting that I can recommend, but if just find one or two experts that you can start to unpack what it means to write copy that people respond to. It's not, I, I, so many people consider this some sort of dark art or something dirty where you're manipulating people. That's not what I mean. I just mean being able to write in a way where people actually pay attention to what you're doing. That's mm. that's all it is. I, ha I have a feeling that um, while it's not copywriting per se, um, Donald, I nearly called him David, Donald Miller wrote Story Brand, which talks about um, like incorporating story into your marketing and that is a kind of uh copywriting yes. so that one may be of yes. use to um yeah listeners but Good. circling back to my favorite <laughs> question <laughs> do tell me a secret about your rebellious side <laughs> oh goodness there there are quite a number of stories um that i could choose to tell but i'll, I'll go back to one of the earliest things that I did in my in my career in which I peg to college because it's when I started writing and publishing and getting paid for it for the college newspaper and I was the staff copy editor and I had been recruited to work on the newspaper by a friend a friend that went back to high school and so he was he was um higher on the masthead than I was and he decided to run for editor. And he said, now I want you to be my second in command if I should get, <laughs> if I should get this position. Which actually, <laughs> it sounded pretty good, in fact, because I was, you know, kind of shy and not, didn't always put myself out there. And I thought, you know, what do I know? You know, I'm only the copy editor. I, you know, I, I don't have as much experience as he has. Um, but then after thinking about it for a bit longer, I thought, now, why should I actually be second in charge? <laughs> and I end, yeah, I ended up applying for editor at the same time. I mean, we were at the same year, so it's not like I could just wait for him to have his time in the sun and then go after him because I would have been out of school by that point. Um, so I ran against him and won. <laughs> <laughs> you did? Oh, I love that. I love that so yeah. much. Oh, I, I literally, I, like, I love a story like that. <laughs> and I have to say, nobody was happy with me doing that. <laughs> <laughs> nobody. Oh, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm delighted. I, I think that's an absolutely wonderful story. Um, okay, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, the hot sheet, and anything else you'd like to add. So the best place to go is my website, janefriedman.com. It has links to everything that I do, my books, my classes, my newsletters. Um, and then the hot sheet is, is the part of my business I'm trying to grow and create time for. So that's the paid newsletter on the publishing industry. It tries to you know, bridge the gap 
for all authors, traditional indie hybrid, whatever it is that you're doing, if you're doing it as a business, um, that's who the newsletter is for. Yeah, and it is fantastic. It comes out on a Wednesday, I think, because I know I always leave a slot on my Friday afternoon to read it <laughs> because it is, it's a beast of a newsletter. It is. And, you know, you, that, yeah, there's lots of different sections and bits and interesting uh, pieces of news that you wouldn't, you just wouldn't find out because, you know, I don't know. I, I, that, I tell you, that newsletter is voodoo magic because I don't know where you're sourcing all the information from, but it's fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, listeners ought to, um, to go and uh, subscribe. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Oh, and thank you so much also to everybody listening. And of course, a big thank you to the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, and you can do so by visiting uh, patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Jane Friedman. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week I'm going to be joined by Martha Alderson and we're going to be talking about a couple of different things. We're going to be talking about plot whispering and also boundless creativity, the more spiritual um, mental health side of creativity. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. (music) 